Have you ever been so full of pride and so convinced of something that you are right on, that you are not willing to listen to anything else? That it is all about you, it is all about what you can get, all about what you desire. And then you come to find that perhaps you were wrong. Has anybody ever felt that? Has anybody ever had that happen to them? See some heads shaking. I see some people say they're always right. <laughs> Let me tell you a little story. Years ago, and I'm kind of embarrassed to say this because when I do, you'll wonder perhaps why you even hired me. I was in junior high, ninth grade, and I would tell you this. I was absolutely 100% convinced that like the plural of geese, or the plural of goose being geese, the plural of moose was meese. I was 100% convinced that the plural of moose was meese, to the point that I was sitting with friends, they were telling me that they weren't sure that that was the case, and I said, I will bet everything that I have, go find a dictionary, and I will tell you that the plural of moose is meese. I see some people smiling, because what I'll let you know is I had to hurriedly find a dictionary, scratch out the plural of moose being moose, and write in Mies. Now I'm kidding, I didn't do that, but I was wrong. But I will tell you that I was 100% convinced, and I was so set in my pride and my selfish ways, that I wasn't willing to compromise what I thought was right. Why am I talking about that today? Well, what I want to speak to you as we look in the book of James, we're talking about humility and submission to who God is. But we're also recognizing that in this book, we come to discover that James is writing to individuals in the church who are so convinced that they are right in their way, so full of pride, so convinced in getting what they want, that there are quarrels among the church. And interesting enough, what we come to find is oftentimes that the reason those quarrels exist is because these people in their own selfish ways aren't willing to submit to who God is or to submit to the greater good of the church. And they're essentially living like the world. How many of you recognize oftentimes in the world it's really all about you, yourself, and what you can get? We've talked about this before. We begin and recognize that so many of the messages that we see out there are all about you. They're all about getting what you can get from the world and then forget the rest. They're all about climbing the corporate ladder. And oftentimes in climbing the corporate ladder, using other people as the rungs as you pass them by. And yet what we see in Christ is there is a very different message. We're called as followers of Jesus to be individuals, not only who submit to the word of God, but who serve and walk humbly before our God. We're going to ask a question this morning, and I'm going to start off. You'll notice that the title is The Supreme Court. We're going to see some individuals in a moment who were so convinced that they were right Yet, we're going to see the audacity of some of the claims that they were making and the lawsuits that they had just come up with. We're asking a question this morning, and that's simply this. The world exists to serve me and my, my desires, doesn't it? So often in our world, people have these messages that it's all about them. They can get what they want. 
they deserve, they need, they have, whatever is it that might, might be, to the point, like me, that they're so convinced in their pride that the plural of moose is meese, yet they can be totally wrong. I'm going to show just a few lawsuits. These are real lawsuits that have occurred. And I just want to read them to you on how audacious some of these claims are. Number one, a convicted bank robber on parole robbed a California savings and loan branch. The bank robber placed the money roll containing the hidden security pack in his front pants pocket. The security pack released tear gas and red dye, resulting in second and third degree burns, requiring, requiring treatment at a hospital. The bank robber sued the bank, the security pack manufacturer, the city police, and the hospital. I robbed a bank. I had the security pack, I got burned, and now I'm going to sue the bank because they had the security pack, the police because they came after me, the hospital because I had third degree burns. I'm right, aren't I? I mean, it's audacious. But this person thought they were right in their pride, in their selfishness, and in their arrogance. Let's take a look at another one. A woman in Israel sued a TV station as its weather, uh, and its weatherman for $1,000 after he predicted a sunny day and it rained. Sounds really good, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but that's an easy way to make a lot of money because the easiest job in the world is a weatherman. Well, we're looking at sun, but maybe we have showers or we might have snow or we might have wind. We don't know, right? So this lady ended up suing the weatherman and the reason was the woman claimed that the forecast caused her to leave home lightly dressed. As a result, she caught the flu, missed four days of work, spent $38 on medication, and suffered mental stress. Throw that one in there too, right? Oh my gosh, it was so hard. How about another one? This is great. This is one of my personal favorites. A surfer sued another surfer for taking his wave. <laughs> this went to court, people! Right? The case was ultimately dismissed because they were unable to put a price on the pain and suffering the surfer experienced while watching someone else ride the wave that was intended for him. <laughs> How do we put a price on that, right? Now, this is, my, this is my ultimate favorite. This is the one that I love the most, okay? This is, this is the last one, and then we're going to move forward into the scriptures. A man sued Anheuser-Busch for $10,000 for false advertising. He claimed that he suffered physical and mental injury as well as emotional distress from the implicit promises in the advertisements. When he drank the beverage, success with women did not come true for him, plus he got sick. I love how they, he got sick, right? What does that mean? Fortunately, the Michigan, uh, Michigan Court of Appeals affirmed a lower court decision and dismissed the case. Why am I bringing this up? Now, these are hilarious, right? But there are individuals who thought they were right and they were just in what they were doing. 
and they were so full of pride, and it was so about them that these examples demonstrate sometimes how individuals can look and be convinced that they are right, and yet they could be wrong or they could be continuing in their sin. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this morning what I want to encourage you in is this perhaps, could that be us? Could that be moments where we are so convinced of the plural of moose is meese that we're not willing to listen to anybody else and who they are and what they're about to the point that in our pride or in our selfish reflection, we're not willing to hear from anybody else? James writes to the church and he speaks to this issue in chapter 4 of his book. And he talks particularly about submitting ourselves to God. But interestingly enough, he takes a comparison where individuals are looking at themselves and what they will do and how they will live and how their life will be. And interestingly enough, we come to recognize that every moment that we are given is really in the hands of God. It's in the will of God. And I know that sounds crazy to some of us, but the will of God is what it's all about. The will of God is what got us up this morning. The will of God is what continues to have us have this day. The will of God is what will have us have tomorrow, should He will it. Yet so often what we do is is we make our own plans, our own places, our own things, our own desires, and we leave God out of the equation, thinking that it's all about us, all about what we want, how we want, and what we're going to do. And then in it, we turn to God and say, now that I've made my plans, now that I have my will, now that I have my path, God, I want you to bless it. And friends, what we're going to see here in a moment is James is saying, brothers and sisters in Christ, what we're called to do is, is we're called to live by the will of God. And should the will of God bring about tomorrow, praise God for it. And should the will of God bring X, Y, or Z, then praise God for it. But we shouldn't be sitting there saying, this is what I will do. This is how I will live. This is where I will go. This is what I will be. And then turn to God and say, oh God, by the way, after I've made my plans, I want you to come in and submit to me. Because after all, as we look at scripture and as we read this, the title says, submit yourselves to God. Let's read. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or, do you think Scripture says, without reason, that the Spirit He caused to live in us envies intensely, but He gives us more grace? That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter and mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting 
in judgment on it. There's only one, only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Friends, James is writing not to individuals who don't know Jesus. He's writing to the church. He's writing to people who claim to know Christ, and yet there's quarreling and fights among them. And the reason is, is that these individuals are so convinced in their own selfish desires that they're not willing to submit to the Word of God or to the church that's around them. And friends, that's how quarrels and fights and arguments can happen within congregations. It's when an individual in their own pride desires something and they're not willing to look at anything else. And it's because of the pride that's within, not the humble servant heart, that then creates the quarrel. Now, I'm saying this, and I don't want anybody worried. There's not quarrels within our church. We're not perfect. We don't have everything together. There are things that we could do better. But I don't want anyone worrying and wondering, oh my gosh, is Trevor talking about me? Or is there something going on in our congregation right now that we don't know about? No. But I also want you to know that oftentimes the manner of how a church can be disrupted is when we, in our own desire, in our own pride, in our own selfish ways, want something that we think that we deserve or we desire. And then in that, we're not willing to submit to what God is doing and how God is working for His glory, His and His name's sake. The first thing that I want you to recognize, and I think that James is particularly speaking to this in verses 1 through 3, is that we are called to pray with the correct motives. What do I mean by that? I just want to throw this out to you. How many of you pray for the will of God to be accomplished in your life? Or how many of your prayers are, God, I need this, I want that, do this, don't do this, change that, make this happen, give me this, don't give me that, move me here, don't move me there, give me more, give me this, don't do that, and OPS, by the way, I love you. Now I'm saying this because oftentimes, I'm not saying that it's wrong to go to God and ask Him for things. But one of the things that we need to recognize is how often do we ask with the wrong motive? God, give me X so that I could blah. And in it, what we begin to realize is the so that I could blah is something that's going to take us away from deeper intimacy with Him. As a good father, is God going to say, sure, yeah, go ahead, it's yours. Yeah, that's fine. Go ahead and get what you want so that you and I have a deeper, more estranged relationship. 
No. And then oftentimes, what do we do? When we don't get what we want, do we look and say, oh God, you're just an amazing father and we love you and I can't believe how amazing you are? No, what do we do? We get mad at God. We become angry with him. We begin to ask if he even exists or even cares. And friends, lovingly, what I want to tell you is this. Perhaps the reason that God isn't answering your prayer is because you're asking with the wrong motive. Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever gone and said, Father, is the reason that you're not answering this prayer or is the reason that I'm asking this and you're giving the exact opposite perhaps to show me that my motive in prayer is selfish, self-serving, and self-desiring rather than God-honoring, God-exalting, and God-edifying? James starts off and he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. And so what do you do? Time and time again, friends, in Scripture, we see you kill and you covet, but you cannot have. How many times in Scripture do we see people of God not getting what they want, and so what do they do? They kill and they covet. We don't do that, do we? You cool and fight, but you do not have because you don't ask God. Oh, I'm asking God. I'm going to God in prayer. God, give me this. God, give me that. Do this for me. Don't do that for me. And friends, lovingly, what I want to tell you is, is God isn't a genie. God isn't a genie in a bottle who exists to give us all of our pleasures, all of our whims, and all of our desires. God went to the cross to die to forgive us of our sins so that we might have eternal life. And that in this, when we go to him, we're to submit to his will in our lives. His perfect, pleasing, and honoring will. And so friends, oftentimes, your prayers may go unanswered. And it might be that God lovingly is saying, wait, my child. Or he might be saying, no, my answer is no. And the reason is, as much as I know that you're mad at me, as much as I know that this causes you to question if I exist, if you were to get what you're asking for now, it would cause you and I to move away from intimacy. And I don't want that for you. And what father would look to their child and say, sure, have this, fully knowing that in giving that to that child, that that would cause that individual to move away from an intimate relationship with the father who deeply loves them. That's not fatherly love. And so friends, we look, and James continues on, and he says, when you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you want on your pleasures. Now please hear me, I don't, I'm not legalistic, I'm not saying that you guys can't go out and enjoy a nice meal, or if you want, you can go and buy a new car. That's not what I'm talking about. But how often are our prayers filled with give me this so that I can, and then it basically is the gist of ease of life. Versus, Father, should you choose to give me this or not give me that? Whatever it might be, may it be so that I might glorify you. 
Do you see the difference? And so, friends, what I want to tell you is we're called to pray with correct motives. And so lovingly, what I want to encourage you in is when you go to time in prayer, when we have these prayer meetings, let's look at our motives. Let's look at why we're praying. And are we praying for selfish gain or are we praying for the exaltation of our king and his kingdom? In the book of 1 John, chapter 3, verses 21 through 22, it says this, Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask. Why? Because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. We receive anything we ask because we obey his command and do what pleases him. So lovingly, the next question is, is when we pray, are we praying because we are obeying his commands and doing what pleases him? Or are we praying and asking because we want selfish gain away from him? Friends, we're called to pray with the correct motives. And then James continues on and he goes even deeper in verses 4 through 6. And it's simply this, that we're called to turn away from worldly desires. I'm not saying that we're not called to be in the world. We're called to be in the world. But we're not called to be of it. And friends, oftentimes what I think is so hard is the lines are blurred between church and world. We want Jesus, but we want the world as well. And oftentimes, it's kind of a 50-50 scenario. Give me 50 Jesus and 50 world. That's good enough. But our God, as we see James Wright, is a jealous God, and God wants all of us. He wants 100% of our lives. And friends, as we turn more to God and the love that he has and the life that he gives and the blessing that we receive, as we turn more and more to him, the world should fade into the distance. The analogy that I can give is, is as we move forward on the highway with God, our eyes should be forward, and we shouldn't be concerned about what's in the rearview mirror. We should be looking to Jesus constantly, wanting to know more of him, and letting the world slowly but surely fade away, and the desires of the world not be predominant in our hearts and in our lives. James is pretty pointed. He says, you adulterous people... Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? I mean, he, he kind of just lays it out there. And he's talking about a relationship. He's saying, you adulterous people. Let me ask you this, okay? I mean, and this is a good analogy for those of you that are married, right? What if I came to you and I was like, ah, yeah, you know, um, I hang out with Kelly on Sunday for an hour, maybe an hour and a half, we talk a little bit, and it's good. But then after, on, on Sunday, you know, there's, there's a lot of ladies out there. Right? Pause for effect. Kelly, I love you, first and foremost. <laughs> but friends, it's, it's, it's that real. That's why he uses that language. 
you look and you're like, doesn't that sound harsh? I mean, you adulterous people? It's that real. That's the point that he's making. We are the bride of Christ, as scripture says. We are followers of Jesus. We've been given eternal life. And what James is saying here is it's not enough to come in and love your father on a Sunday and then forget about him or cheat on him for the remaining six days of the week. That's not what God is after. You don't know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. James is quite pointed on this, and I want to be very careful on this. I am not saying that we're not to be out in the world. We're not to go out and love people. We're not to go out and demonstrate our faith to others. We're not to be engaging the world. We're not to become a holy huddle. But friends, I want to ask you, honestly, ask a question in your life right now. On a scale, zero to 100%, how much is my heart for the world versus Jesus Christ? And that's scary because the world is so constantly in our lives saying, love me. And we can so easily forget about our first passion. The one who loves us even when we didn't love him first. James continues on, or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? It's a rhetorical question. Basically what he's saying is, is hey, you've come to Jesus Christ. You've been given the Holy Spirit that lives within you. And he doesn't get jealous when you're out flirting with the world. He doesn't mind when you're dating other ladies even though you're married to him. No. We see all throughout Scripture that our God is a jealous God. And he wants a relationship with us. He desires a relationship with us. But here's what I love. And this is, this is the beauty of who God is. But he gives us more grace. Friends, so often we commit adultery on our Savior, yet God gives us grace upon grace. And he says, you are my son, you are my daughter. I love you and I have died for you and you will be mine. Yes, he is a jealous God. Yes, he wants us to be devoted to him 100%. But that's where grace comes in. And that's where grace becomes sweet. Because friends, I guarantee you that not one of us in this room has not committed adultery on our Savior, Jesus Christ. And yet he says, I love you. And yet he says, you are mine. And yet he says, you will be mine forever because I died for you. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's interesting because James inserts this quote and he's essentially writing the wisdom of Proverbs right there. But I love how it flows so well 
when we recognize the fact that we've all committed adultery on our Savior, yet God gives us grace. I don't know about you, but when I hear that fact, my pride, anything that I have, becomes quickly humbled in who my God is. And when I realize that I'm humbled and that God is giving grace to me, that's when I recognize that's how we are to walk with him. And then he continues. But I want to take a minute and I want to read this quote to you that I find so interesting. How many of you have ever heard or read the writings of Hannah Whittle Smith? Anyone? See, see one hand? Okay. Wonderful writing. Writes a book essentially about the Christian secret to a happy life. But here's what's interesting. This point that's being made is so pertinent to our day, but this point that was made was made over 120 years ago. And this is what she says. The standard of practical holy living has been so low among Christians that very often the person who tries to practice spiritual disciplines in everyday life is looked upon with disapproval by a large person of, uh, portion of the church. Why, why are you praying? Why are you reading your Bible? Why do you have a quiet time? Why do you take time and spend with him in prayer? What, what's that all about? Right? That's, that's like too holy. Right? And for the most part, the followers of Jesus Christ are satisfied with a life so conformed to the world. So like it in almost every respect that to the casual observer, there is no difference between the Christian and the pagan. I, I just want to ask a question. To the casual observer, would someone see a difference in you? Would they look and would they say, there is something different about that person? I don't know what it is, but there is something different about them. Or would you simply blend into the world? Now, I'm not saying that we all need to go out and be Bible-thumping, you know, hey, you need to do this, blah, 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 blah. But my, my question to us is simply this. Is there a difference? Or like chameleons, do we come in in one color that fits the church and then immediately as we leave, change colors to fit and match the world? James speaks so clearly to this point. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Friends, as we look at this, we see that we're called to pray with correct motives. We also see that we're called to turn away from worldly desires. Now go out, work hard, do your thing, pursue your dreams, be who God's created you to be. But friends, be who God's created you to be to bring glory and honor to him, not glory and honor to you, as the world so clearly says. Go out and be 
the best educator you can be. Go out and be the best scientist you can be. Go out and be the best musician you can be. Go out and be the best artist you can be. Go out and be the best photographer you can be. Go out and be the best pastor that you can be. Whatever it is and however God has created you, go out and do that. But go out and do it to bring glory and honor to him. Not to yourself. And then James continues on in verses 7 through 12, and kind of the idea that he's giving is this, that we're called to submit to God, who is the ultimate lawgiver and judge. Nobody likes the word submission, do they? I don't want to submit to anything. I don't want anybody to rule over me. Don't tell me to do this. That's not what I'm supposed to do. I'm the king of my kingdom. And yet right here, what James is exalting the church and encouraging the church to do is to submit to God, whose will is perfect, honoring, and pleasing. Right after, he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Notice how that works. It brings us to a level of humility. And then he enters in and he says, submit yourself to God. It's interesting because I find the writing of James so poignant right here. He could start off and say, submit yourselves to God, right? Could have. But how does that make us feel? It puts us immediately on the defensive, doesn't it? but what has he just done before? He talks about grace that he gives each and every day, which puts us what? In a position of hearing and receiving and a willingness to hear the next part of what's being said, which is the part that isn't natural to us. Submit yourselves to God then. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. I don't know where God is. I don't know what he's doing. Now, friends, I'm t I'm, I want you to be very clear. I don't want anybody feeling right now that if in your life you kind of wonder what God is up to, there are times where I would say in my time with Jesus that God is right there. It is 100% clear and obvious. And there are other times where I'm like, God, where in the world are you, right? We also see that in Scripture. There are times in Scripture where it is 100% obvious that God is right there, and there are other times in Scripture where it's like, God, where in the world are you at? So I don't want anybody ever thinking when I say this next statement that perhaps if God seems far away from you, that maybe you're doing something wrong. But I also want to share this with you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Lovingly. A question to ask if you feel that your spiritual life is dry is this. Is it that you're not coming to God? Now, there are times when you will come to God and he will be quiet. He will be silent. He will be distant. And that is a time of testing a time of sanctification, a time of drawing, a time of growing. But may I ask a humble question, is it that God is distant because you're not coming to him but going to the world? Let me just put it this way. God, I need X, but I'm gonna go to the world to find it. 
I'm hurting, I'm alone, I'm struggling, I need this, I ask this, but I'm gonna go to the world and I'm gonna look and I'm gonna try to find all the affirmation right here and right there and I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna do that and where are you and I don't know what's going on and I can't see you in my life, but I'm going to the world. Or the other way. Same scenario, but Father, I'm gonna go near you. I'm gonna draw near you. And friends, can I ask you a very simple question? When you have drawn near to God, has he ever not drawn near to you? No. Hindsight being 2020, every single time that I know that I've drawn to God, that I've gone to him, I can look back and I can say, you were there, period. The other thing that I'll tell you is this, hard times are some of the best times for intimacy with our Savior. And so, I know this sounds crazy, but cherish the hard times when we draw near to God and he draws near to us because we know he is real and he is there. He continues on and he says, wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded, grieve and mourn and wail, change your laughter into mourning, your joy into gloom, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. How often do we go in an issue and we say, I'm gonna figure it out, and then after we've exhausted our inability to figure it out, do we turn to God? Rather than turning to God first and humbling ourselves before him and allowing him to lift us up. Friends, there's nothing wrong in an issue or a situation to go, I don't know, I don't have the answer, it's beyond me, but I'm going to God in prayer and I'm asking him for wisdom. There's nothing weak about that. To be honest with you, that's probably one of the strongest statements you can make. I don't know, but God does, and I'm trusting him to reveal whatever it is to me. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother judges him or speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge the one who was able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? So often in our lives, when we're going through something difficult, do we turn and look at judgment upon other people? Oh, I might be struggling with this, but at least I'm better than what? The person sitting next to me. Who are we to judge our neighbor? I can't cast judgment on anyone because I'm not the lawgiver and judge. God is. So friends, rather than casting judgment on other people, let's make our time count. and Let's go to the lawgiver and judge and allow him to work in our hearts and our lives rather than worrying about the person next to us. We're called to submit to God who is the ultimate lawgiver and judge. And then friends, we're called to humbly accept God's will for our lives. We continue this next section and James talks about boasting tomorrow. 
Now listen, you who, uh, who say today or tomorrow we go to this or that city, we'll spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? It's quite humbling, isn't it? And I admit, I mean, I'm looking ahead. We've got things in our calendar, you know, a couple days we had to take Parker off to college. We're going to do this. We're going to go to Charlotte and do that. If God allows it, if that's God's will, right? I don't know. I, don't, I, I can't promise you that tomorrow's coming. I think it is. Probably will. Maybe. Maybe God will return. I don't know. And then what I think is so important is to look at this. And it's, it's at first, it kind of makes you angry. Why, right? James, why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life, right? I mean, how, how, what is your life, people? How does that make you feel? What's your life? Bah, nothing, right? You're just a mist, just here and gone. How does that make you feel today? You are just a mist. How does it make you feel? Honestly, angry? Frustrated? Kind of. But let me throw this in. You're just a mist. In this great cosmos of life. And if there is a God who knows you and loves you and cares for you deeply and intimately that he died on the cross for you. He knows every single hair on your head. He knows when you go to sleep and when you rise. He knows every word on your mouth before you even speak it. And yet, you're just a mist. I don't know about you, but that turns my heart to humility. Holy cow, I am just a mist. In the greatness of the world, in the whole cosmic scheme, in the vastness of the universe, I am just a mist. Yet there is a God who knows me and loves me deeply and intimately to the point that he knows me better than myself. That brings me to humility. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. It is as you boast and brag all such boasting is evil. Anyone, then, who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Friends, have we accepted God's will for our life? I say this so often. When we pray the prayer, not my will be done, but thy will be done, do we mean it? Do we mean it? We look, and we talk about submission to the will of God. We talk about allowing him to work in our life, allowing us to draw ourselves closer to him so that he might be exalted. And Peter says this in 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6, Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, reiterating all that is stated in James.
Humble yourselves. Sounds so counterintuitive, doesn't it? So counterintuitive to what our world says. Don't humble yourself. Exalt yourself. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Let me just make an issue and a point. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand. How'd that work out for Jesus in a worldly perspective? Not so great. That he, three days later, may lift you up in due time. Conquering death, conquering sin, bringing life to all who will come to him through the humility that is displayed through Jesus Christ. Friends, the world exists to serve me and my desires, doesn't it? This morning, as we've looked at the book of James, we come to recognize that we exist to serve our king and his kingdom. And so in that, friends, as we look at this book of James, remind us that we're called to pray with correct motives. We're called to turn away from worldly desires. We're called to submit to God, who is the ultimate lawgiver and judge. And we're called to humbly accept God's will for our lives, all which culminates in kind of this final statement, which is this, that while the world seeks after its own pleasures and desires, we're called to submit to God, who is the ultimate lawgiver and judge. This morning, I just want to take a minute, and I just want to ask you, is there an area in your life where you need to submit over to God's will? Is there something you're battling with? Is there something that you're holding on to saying, this is mine, this is it, I want this, God, you can't have it, and you recognize that you've been going through struggle and strife? My question is, have you submitted it over and given it to God and said, God, your will be done, not mine? Let's take a minute and think about that, and I'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you for you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a jealous God. Father, we thank you that you've given us our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that it is a free gift to anyone who comes forward and says, God, I can't do this on my own. I know I'm not perfect. I know I need you. I know that you went to the cross on my behalf so that I might have life through your sacrifice. I know that you rose from the grave, triumphing over sin and death, helping me to understand that sin and death can no longer keep me in the grave, but I can be exalted from it because of all of what you have done. And Father, when I do, I'm received into your hand of love and mercy and grace. I'm in, adopted into your family as a son or daughter of a living king. And Father, I have an eternal inheritance that will come at the appropriate point in time. But Father, because of all of that and all that you have done in my life and are doing, I choose to submit to you. I choose to bring my life to you as an offering so that you might be the one who's glorified in all that we do. So, Lord, as I examine my heart, is there something in there that I'm holding on to that's my will and I'm not letting it be your will? And, Father, with that, I take it out and I lift it up to you. Lord, I pray and I say, Lord, whatever it is, do with it as you will. 
because I no longer want selfish motivation. I want your will for my life. And Father, I trust that in so doing, you will answer that prayer in your time and in your place as I draw near to you, knowing that you will draw near to me. Father, thank you for that promise. Thank you for the fact that you never leave us nor forsake us, that you are good and gracious God. Father, thank you that you give grace to the humble. We pray these things in your name, dear Jesus, and we ask it by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit and all God's people say, amen.